Grace and peace to you all, and welcome to the Calvary Road with Pastor Sam Allen. It's a monastery mentality, one I'm certain the Lord would have us avoid. Here's why. He says we are the light of the world. We are the salt of the earth. And as wonderful as it is to get away and listen to the Lord and be with the Lord, we've got to go back into the real world, down the mountain, into the valley, where people are struggling and suffering. Starting in verse 14, this new message will cover the last half of Matthew chapter 17. Pastor Sam has entitled this message, Mountaintops and Valleys, as he looks at the difference between the high of witnessing the transfiguration and the low of the disciples failing at the healing of the demon-possessed child. Matthew's Gospel, chapter 17, we're picking up today at verse 14, the title of our message, Mountaintops and Valleys. Mountaintop experiences with the Lord are really nothing uncommon if you're walking with or growing in Him. It's a fact that He takes us aside, that He speaks to us in those quiet, precious, private times. But I've noticed, and you're going to notice if you haven't already, that wonderful, glorious mountaintop experiences, well, they're almost always followed by problems, troubles, trials, tribulations in the valley. We see this consistently with those who walked closest to the Lord in Scripture. Moses called up on the mountaintop, sees the burning bush. The Lord speaks to him out of that burning bush. And, and what a glorious and radical experience. you got to know that, that that would have carried him for months and years had it not been for what followed immediately. And that was he had to face off with Pharaoh, who was in rebellion to God. And he had to deal with his own people who were walking in unbelief. So Moses' mountaintop experience, well, it leads him back down into the valley of persecution and problems. Then later, Moses, and many of you studying through Exodus with us on Wednesday night, so these stories are a bit fresher for you. Moses there on the mount, not Horeb this time, Sinai this time, and he's getting the Ten Commandments from the Lord, as well as the instructions for the building of the tabernacle and the rest of the law. Well, what happens? Glorious impact as he's up there on the mountain, listening to the Lord and fellowshipping with the Lord. And then in his descent, what happens? He finds the children of Israel dancing around a golden calf. His own brother, his assistant pastor, Aaron, has been a party to fashioning and forming this thing. And the people are in idolatry and there's immorality and, well, judgment's coming. We see this not just in the life of Moses, but you can trace through. You'll see it in Elijah. You'll see it in so many others. And I was looking even at the gospel that we've been studying together. And I see Jesus there on, well... That mount we call the Mount of Beatitudes. It was a mountain range where he taught the disciples and those who gathered close in those things we read in Matthew 5, 6, and 7. But immediately coming down from that wonderful time of teaching and fellowship and communion, there was a leprous man that confronted Jesus and needed to be helped by Jesus. Later, we find Jesus up on a mountainside praying all evening and into the late night to his father and, and communing, fellowshipping with the father, only to come down and find his disciples straining and struggling in the midst of the storms 
in the valley below. Here in chapter 17, we see really this picture once again. It was a glorious opportunity for Peter, James, and John, drawn to the top of the mountain. They see their Jesus transfigured before their very eyes. He began to glow. They began to see a, a glimpse of his coming glory, a, a picture of, well, what would happen in the coming kingdom. He meets there, Jesus, that is, with Moses and with Elijah. And he discusses, we're told, his decease his demise, it's actually the word exodus, brought it up last time. If you weren't here with us, tapes are available and recommended. They talked about the cross. It's interesting for Jesus because whether it was on the mountaintop or in the valley below, the cross was always looming. He knew he came to suffer and die, to pay for the sin of each and every one of us. So Jesus, there on that mountaintop, well, for Peter, for James, for John, this was just glorious. And Peter makes a suggestion up there. And his suggestion is, well, based on the fact that this is just wonderful, Lord, it was back in verse 4, if you want to look at it. It says, it is good for us to be here. If you wish, let us make three tabernacles, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. Now, I bring this to your attention before we actually jump into the study at hand, because... I've noticed over the years that during those seasons where we're having a glorious revelation of the Lord and a, a wonderful time with the Lord, we can begin to develop an attitude that would kind of say, this is great, this is good enough, let's just set up camp, let's keep this going as it were. It's a monastery mentality, one I'm certain the Lord would have us avoid. Here's why. He says we are the light of the world. We are the salt of the earth. And as wonderful as it is to get away and listen to the Lord and be with the Lord, we've got to go back into the real world, down the mountain, into the valley, where people are struggling and suffering. We are the light to represent the Lord to them. We are the salt to preserve this society until he takes us home. We are called and commissioned to go into all the world and preach the gospel, to make disciples of every nation, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And he says, teaching them to observe all things I've commanded you. You see, that can never happen if you set up camp on the top of the mountain. If it's just, this is great, this is wonderful, this is, it's good for us, yes, but what about the rest? Well, as they descend this glorious mountaintop experience and, and leave it behind, verse 14 tells us, when they had come, the multitude, or come to the multitude, a man came to him kneeling to him and saying, Lord, have mercy on my son, for he is an epileptic and suffers severely, for he often falls into the fire and often into the water. So I brought him to your disciples, but they could not cure him. Now, there are a few things here, and I've got to fill in a couple blanks from Mark and Luke's account, because they give us some information that we really skip over here, and it's pertinent, it's important to our study today. Mark tells us that when Jesus descended that mountain, he saw this great crowd gathered, and they were in the midst of a rather heated discussion. The scribes were there. They were religious students, and, and um, they were actually talking about, no doubt, the suffering of this child, the situation he found himself in. 
Now, it's a bit of an unfortunate translation that they say he was an epileptic here, and here's why. His problem wasn't mental or chemical or even physical. It was spiritual, and we know that because both Mark and Luke tell us that he was demon-possessed. He was mute because a demon in, in, was in his body and kept him from speaking. And when it says here that he often fell in the water or in the fire, well, Mark tells us that he was often thrown into the water and thrown into the fire. We don't know how, we don't know when, but we know that this man's son, his only son, I believe it's Luke that tells us, he had been possessed by a demon. And because Satan comes to steal and kill and destroy, those who represent him, well, they come to do the very same thing. To steal, to kill, and destroy. To rob us of hope, of peace, of joy, of, of faith. Well, what happens then? Jesus comes down, there's this great discussion brewing. The disciples had been a, unable to help the man, and, and that's troubling on a, a whole variety of fronts. Here's why. Jesus had chosen these guys and discipled them personally. He had commissioned them and empowered them to go out to represent him. And in that empowerment and in that commission, he said to go, and basically they were to preach, they were to teach, they were to heal, and they were to cast out demons. Now they come back at one point rejoicing saying, hey, even the demons are subject to us. So we know that they were effectively fulfilling that call, that they were preaching, they were teaching, they were healing, and they were casting out demons. But something went wrong. In Jesus' absence, and we have no idea how long he was on that mountaintop, but in his absence, these disciples in the valley below find themselves ineffective unfruitful in the ministry they had formerly been effective and fruitful in. So this man comes, as we read in verse 14, kneeling down before the Lord, have mercy on my son. Mark tells us that he said, have mercy on us. And again, I'm reminded and I share with you that it's virtually impossible for a parent to be completely separated from the struggles and the, the trials of, well, his or her children. This guy identified with the son because he loved his son. And he says, be merciful, Lord. Have mercy on us. Have mercy. My son is, and, and if you have the old King James, it says a lunatic. Maybe they translated it epileptic because people had trouble with that term. But it's actually more accurate. It's from a word that is often translated moonstruck. And so whatever was going on with him wasn't natural. It was supernatural. It wasn't chemical. It was spiritual. It wasn't a disease. It was a demon. Well, the appearance, though, would have been very much like epilepsy. He still had seizures. He was still thrown down. He was still bruised and battered from those encounters. Well, in any case, he cites the problem. And then he shares, as I read, verse 16, I brought him to your disciples, and they could not cure him. Now, they'll later ask Jesus exactly why, but I don't want to get ahead of where we're at in the study. Jesus turns and answers, first of all, O faithless and perverse generation, how long shall I bear with you? Bring him to me. 
Now, we're going to see that this is a lesson in faith and unbelief. Their problem, unbelief. But there is faith being exercised here, and it's important that we see it. For those who suggest, if you only have enough faith, things will always happen, or you'll always get what you want. Here is a man of great faith. He has a problem. His son is suffering. There's nothing the doctors or anyone else can do about it. So he brings his son to the disciples. That was an act of faith. He believed these disciples, no doubt he'd heard, they were commissioned and empowered. He believed these disciples could free his son from the demon that possessed him. But the disciples were unfruitful and ineffective in that encounter, as we already shared. Now he brings his son to Jesus. And, and this is really what I wanted to make sure I didn't fail to share with you. Inevitably, when you trust in man, even godly men, godly women, when you come and you say, hey, here's my situation, would you pray or could you intercede or could you do something? Inevitably, you will find that people fail you. When that happens, some people foolishly assume, well then, if they can't help, the Lord can't help. They represent him. If they can't do anything, well, nothing can be done. Don't ever fall for that. Don't buy into that. It's a lie of the enemy. The truth is, though people fail and falter, God never fails or falters. And if you've been discouraged or disappointed because you've put your hope and trust in people and they've let you down, well, you're in good company. All of us have been let down by people. But when that happens... Don't walk away. Draw closer to the Lord. And here's why. This man had faith that the disciples could help and they didn't. Instead of walking away disappointed, he came and besought the Lord, pled with the Lord. Lord, have mercy on us. And that's what we need to do. We need to know that when men are faithless, the Lord remains faithful. When men fail, the Lord will still come through. So he first rebukes the crowd. Oh, faithless and perverse generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I bear with you? Bring him to me. In the midst of this scene and this devastation, the next thing that happens is absolutely wonderful and amazing. Jesus rebuked the demon and he came out of him and the child was cured from that very hour. But again, Mark fills in the blanks and, and they're too important to pass by. When the father comes to the Lord, well, Jesus says, all things are possible to him who believes. The man utters, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. Now, I identify and, and, and I, I, I totally can relate and, and here's why. There have been so many times where I knew the Lord was in fact the solution to the problem at hand. And I come to him because I know that that's an act of faith. But in the midst of that, there is still that nagging unbelief, whether it's the enemy whispering in my ear or my own foolishness thinking, well, maybe he won't answer or maybe he won't come through or here's what I've learned. The Lord is always faithful. The Lord is always faithful. And when this father comes and, and he hears the crowds rebuked and then sees the demon rebuked, well, he knows his son is free. He knows his son 
will be okay. So he assures the man, listen, if you, if you just have faith, it, it will work out. And he's like, Lord, I do believe. I do believe. Help my unbelief. Perhaps some are here today, some of you, because you're in the midst of a trial, you're in the midst of a situation. Oh, you've been on the mountaintop. You know Jesus as Lord. You've seen his glory. You've recognized his holiness. You've knelt the knee to him and worshipped him. But now you find yourself in a situation where you're just, Lord, help me. Come through for me. And he's simply saying, hey, believe. And you're like, I do believe. Be honest. Help my unbelief. He responds to such a cry. He responds to such a prayer. It might be that some of you are here, though, and you've never given your life to the Lord Jesus. In that case, you just need to ask him to forgive your unbelief. Because if you continue walking without Jesus, you continue in the way you're going, you will die in your sins. And you will spend eternity apart from God who created you and has a wonderful life for you and a wonderful future for you. There's yet one more thing related here to verse 18 before we can move on. And that is that as Jesus rebukes this demon, it's it's an actual event, an historical event, freeing one child. There's a spiritual picture, a prophetic picture that develops for us. You see, when Jesus returns from heaven, and here's the picture, he's on the mount. Well, not hard to envision that being like heaven, especially in the transformation and the the glory that they saw. When Jesus returns from heaven, we're told he is going to bind Satan and establish his kingdom on earth for a thousand years. Why does he bind him? We're told specifically that he could deceive the nations no more. So Jesus returns, he binds the enemy, and the kingdom is established. Well, that was sort of happening in a very minute scale, a one-on-one scale here. This child that had been, well, somehow possessed by this demon is now freed by the Lord and handed back to his father, healthy and whole and vibrant. Then the disciples came to Jesus privately, we read in verse 19, and they ask, what happened? Why could we not cast him out? It's worth pondering what happened. Why does such a thing happen? How can it be that we know the Lord, we experience the Lord, we walk with the Lord, we grow in him, he uses us, and then we find ourselves in seasons of well, fruitlessness, and, and our faith begins to waver. Before we look at what happens specifically in this situation, well, here's the word, he says, because of your unbelief. We'll go that far and pause for a moment. Unbelief. What's the source of it? Well, it might surprise you to know it's natural. It's normal. The normal state of human beings is unbelief. You talk to the majority of people out there, they don't believe in Jesus. So, it's not unnatural to walk in unbelief. It's actually supernatural to walk by faith, to walk in belief. And here's what I've learned. That my faith in Him, my confidence in Him, is often directly related to the proportion of time I'm spending in His Word. And here's why. I can't live for days and weeks and months on what I've learned or experienced in the past. 
No, I need a fresh and vibrant relationship with the Lord. And he's built me that way. And he's built you that way as well. He's made it so that unless we're in the word, our faith begins to weaken and waver. You know that this is true physically. You can fast for a day or two. Wouldn't do any of us any harm, I imagine. There might be a couple that would be the exception. You can fast for a couple of days. And he's going to talk about prayer and fasting in a moment. And that's not going to do you any harm physically. But if you fast for days and days and weeks and months, well, you're going to get weaker and weaker and weaker and weaker physically. And I find far too many Christians fasting from the word. Oh, we wouldn't ever put it that way. We wouldn't call it that. We never say, well, I'm taking a fast from the word. No, I'm just too busy in the morning or I needed that extra 40 winks or whatever the case might be. I don't know what your experience presently is with the Lord as far as the time you spend in the Word. And I don't share this to trip you out or make you feel guilty or make you feel bad, but to encourage you. If you've never experienced what it is to start every day in the Word of God and to take a little pocket Bible so you can nab some time at lunch and just read through a little more and consider what the Lord is saying and how He might be working in whatever situation you find yourself in. If you at one point, had a habit of reading the word before you went to bed. So the last words in your mind weren't Jay Leno's, but Jesus's words. Man, there is a radical difference in how you sleep and how you dream and what you wake up thinking about. And so the problem is, as we get out of the word, well, we are going to find our faith weakening. And you see it. You know people that were strong and they were walking and they were serving and they were growing. And then you see them and they just seem spiritually weak. Well, the proportion of time I spend in the word will have a direct correlation and relationship to how strong I am in my walk with the Lord and my faith in the Lord. And thereby even my faithfulness to the Lord. So I got to make sure, just like you, that I budget my time wisely you know, I think most of us lack serious time in the Word, not because we're doing a lot of bad stuff instead. It's often the good things that choke out the best things. And we have families, we have responsibilities, we have homes and cars and, and things to care for and people to provide for. But in the midst of that, it's often the Word that is neglected, the Lord that's neglected. And so Jesus tells them, well, it's because of your unbelief. Now, I don't know how long Jesus was up on that mountain. And I don't know what was going through their minds as they were left behind. And Peter, James, and John once again had that place with Jesus. But he goes on to say, assuredly, I say to you, if you have faith as a mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, move from here to there. And it will move and nothing will be impossible for you. Now, some have read into this statement of our Lord that if we have mustard seed faith, and you must know a mustard seed is just the tiniest little thing, and it grows a relatively well good sized mustard bush. But, but, but here's the deal. Some have suggested, well, he's saying if you've got the seed, that's sufficient because that can grow into great faith. But that's not what our Lord is saying. He's saying the mustard seed faith is enough faith. You don't need great faith. You only need a great God and mustard seed faith in that great and glorious and faithful God. It's not how much you believe, but the one in whom you've believed. 
That's the foundation here. That's the essential here. It's the age-abiding principle and, and lesson for us that if we have enough faith, just this much mustard seed faith, he's saying, hey, nothing will be impossible. Nothing. If you have read Jesus' words about faith like a mustard seed and you find yourself saying, I want that, here's a thought for you. Look at 2 Peter 2.2, where it says, As newborn babes, desire the pure milk of the word, that you may grow thereby. You see, we grow, and thus our faith grows, as we spend time in the word and in prayer. We know that God desires us to be a people of faith. So here's a good place to start. As you spend time with the Lord and in the word, ask him for more faith and exercise the faith he has already given you by believing and trusting that he will work in you to grow your faith. The Calvary Road is a ministry of Calvary Chapel Chico, and you can visit our website, ccchico.com, or download the CC Chico app to contact us and listen to other studies from Pastor Sam. You can also listen to The Calvary Road as a daily podcast by visiting thecalvaryroad.com. We'd love to hear from you. And until next time, may you find grace and peace as your journey takes you down the Calvary Road. And your grace.